like the Bible, we come up here, but we're going to begin with Matthew chapter 5. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he had sat down, his disciples came to him. He began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the land. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the clean of heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are they who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they insult you and persecute you and utter every kind of evil against you falsely because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward will be great in heaven. Thus they persecuted the prophets who were born before you. Come, Holy Spirit, enliven this room, inflame this room with your glorious presence, with the fullness of your light. Ask that you place upon me your words, as I'm your humble teacher here tonight. Thank you for the gift of being able to learn about your life, which is encompassed in the Beatitudes. Strengthen us to be virtuous uh, disciples after your own heart. May that very heart be pierced for our salvation. We place all of this in your hands as we pray the prayer you yourself taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So I open with that scripture passage because it's going to be the foundation of what we're talking about tonight, the fundamentals of Catholic moral theology. So it's almost for me how to talk about all this. I have a master's in moral theology. I've taught moral theology at Pius. This is my third year. So it's kind of just how do I talk about it and the X's and O's without just going like super geek mode and just like telling you anything and everything. So uh, talking about it through the lens of the Beatitudes as I was praying about it, this is how I like to go about. But I have that picture on the first page. It's actually one of two of my holy cards from my uh, first Mass. The crucifixion scene there. And uh, yeah, for many reasons, uh, I chose that. But just specifically... Uh, Mary Magdalene, you see her kneeling, embracing the feet of Jesus. Uh, John, I also like this depiction of uh, the Calvary scene because oftentimes John looks, he is very young, he is the beloved disciple, but unfortunately he looks very unmasculine and feminine and young, or like a girl sometimes. Here he doesn't. He looks young, but still very uh, masculine. And Mary, uh, her eyes never taken off of her son, the uh, side of Jesus where you see that constant stream of blood and water. In the background, you see the people 
uh, behind the cross, you see kind of them looking up at Jesus. What's their reaction? What's their response to the kerygma? So the kerygma being that most uh, basic response to the gospel of creation happens, followed by original sin, Jesus' ministry, uh, his public ministry, and then the crucifixion, death, and resurrection. Following that, what's our response? So the kerygma in a nutshell. So you kind of see the kerygma based on them looking up at Jesus. And then you have in the background the sun, the moon, the eclipse, uh, and so forth. So this class then is going to discuss the importance of Catholic morality. And in this crucifixion scene, I think we, we see that in all these figures. The theological truths that provide its foundation. So tonight I'd like to focus on what morality is and is not. We'll do a very brief overview of natural law, what that is, why it's important for morality's sake. Uh, then we'll look at how we make moral choices, specifically the moral act, what goes into that. And then uh, we'll finish off with some essential tools for Catholic morality. So if you've turned to the first page, that's fine. But I just want to ask you uh, as a class, when you simply just hear the word morality, not even necessarily connected with the Catholic Church, you hear the term morality, what immediately comes to mind? So kind of just like a... Uh, Rapid fire, you hear the word morality, what, come, what comes to mind? What do you think of? Anything? Okay. Doing the right thing. What else? Okay. Uh, personal morals. You can just shoot them rapid fire. I'll just keep writing a few more. So what else? Anything? Does anyone think of like a legalistic or like a bunch of rules? You're going to say that? Okay, good. Yeah. Rules, lots of them. Maybe it seems legalistic in a sense. Which to some degree, yeah, it's all these are true. But I think morality, people who uh, are not Catholic or just looking at the church, like, Father, there's the Ten Commandments, there's all these things that we just have to follow and understand, and it just seems like a lot. Uh, it gets confusing very, very frequently, but contrary to pop popular belief, even as Catholics, morality is not just simply about the Ten Commandments and following all these rules. That's a very important part, and we should follow the Ten Commandments. We should follow the Beatitudes. What is Jesus, Jesus telling us is important? What rules should we follow? How should we act? Our personal morals, but not just my personal morals, but do they line up with Christ and His teachings, Christ and His church? rather than my own personal gospel account or making my own set of rules, so to speak. <clears throat> but ultimately, if you learn anything tonight, morality is so much more. It's ultimately centered upon a relationship. Jesus isn't trying to make our lives difficult. He's not trying to make uh, jump through all these hoops and obstacles, and I'm just having fun with you so I can just watch you go through the semantics. But no, morality is ultimately centered upon a relationship rooted in charity love of God, so that in charity he can provide us sanctifying grace. So in this sense, hearing the Beatitudes tonight when he's proclaiming uh, this teaching for the first time, he has his apostles, he has Jews all across Galilee, surrounding regions who want to see this mysterious Jesus figure, this mysterious uh, potential Messiah, and this is what he gives them. When you do these things, you are blessed. When you do these things, which is contrary totally to the world, I am going to be with you. I'm going to provide you grace. I'm going to provide you the strength in order 
to follow me, which will be difficult, which will be impossible, but with my grace, with me being the model, with me being the light in the midst of the darkness, uh, morality will lead to that everlasting life. So in John 14, 15, <clears throat> he tells us, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So when we follow these commandments more and more, we're not living simply for me, myself, and I. We're recognizing Jesus for who he truly is. We're recognizing him as our Lord and Savior, he who is the way, the truth, and the life. And the more we love Christ, the more free we will be. I'll talk a little bit more about freedom here in a bit. But 0.2, if we love Christ, we must strive to faithfully keep his commandments. Because again, morality is about having a relationship not with any set of ideals or uh, personal beliefs, but it's about a person, specifically God and his three persons. So morality is essentially concerned then with love. Uh, 0.3, thus, morality is simply the study of how man is supposed to live his life. This is another thing the Beatitudes express to us. Jesus gives us these teachings, and the first time you can imagine, the first time those disciples heard that, like, Jesus, you're nuts. That's, that's crazy. Like, no one, literally no one in the world does this right now. You're telling us to live exactly opposite of what the world is doing. Yes, I am doing this because we're members, people who live in the world, but we're made uh, for something much greater. Uh, the Baltimore Catechism and uh, religion classes, you have these Q&A type thing, but you'd have memorized responses. And one of the primary, most memorable questions is, uh, what is morality? What's the purpose of morality is to know, love, and serve God in this life and be happy with him in the next. So in order to earnestly labor in this most important study, we need to also continually to seek to understand ourselves. And that can be an issue too, right? Because God knows us better than we know ourselves. We have to continually to recognize and give ourselves credit uh, and recognize that we too are sinners. We need God's grace. So continuing to take that to prayer of like, okay, Jesus, this is the game plan. This is the map you're giving us. Well, how am I going to do this? I need to understand myself. We need to understand human nature a little bit better so that morality makes a little bit more sense. So in 0.5, <clears throat> the beginning of the moral life is about discovering who we are. The discovery of Christ living both among us and within us. So both among us, as he was in the gospel accounts in his uh, three-year public ministry. But now, thanks be to God, within the church, within his sacramental presence in the seven sacraments, above all in the Most Holy Eucharist, that source and summit of our faith, we can actually receive Christ so we know how to live and, not, and how to not live. When we allow Christ to live within us, we begin to live the regular sacramental life he wants us to live. By grace and the sacraments, we begin to live a morally upright and holy life. <clears throat> in moral living, we become more brilliantly who we already are, God's beloved children. So again, we recognize we're sinners, but with this regular sacramental life, the more light is shed upon our darkened intellect, our at times compromise, uh, free will, and so forth. We begin to become another Christ <clears throat> in that sense. As the Word and as our Redeemer, Jesus reveals who we are, and we embrace that life ever more fully. So the Word becoming flesh, we begin to understand who we are. It really highlights even more beautifully, more powerfully, the sheer importance of the Incarnation. Jesus uh, 
doesn't have to become flesh, but in order to show the goodness of the created person, human flesh, he took that on so that he could bear upon himself all the sin, all of the darkness of humanity, and be that teacher for us, that great rabbi, that great teacher of this is the path, this is the way uh, that I want you to live. Okay, so at the bottom of the page, we'll turn our attention to the catechism. What does the catechism uh, tell us about morality in the context of the Beatitudes? In paragraph 1719, the Beatitudes reveal the goal of human existence, the ultimate end of human acts. God calls us to his own Beatitude. So ultimately, Beatitude in heaven, where we simply are with him, uh, see him face to face as he is. But with the sacramental realities that we have through the church, we can, in a mysterious way, live that beatitude-based lifestyle right now. Living a morally upright life and choosing to do good and avoid evil, we can experience that uh, incarnational life, that mysterious Christological life uh, in this world as well. So it's kind of like a foretaste of the heavenly life that God has been calling us to from the beginning. This vocation is addressed to each individual, personally, but also to the church as a whole. The new people made up of those who have accepted the promise and live from it in faith. 1718, the Beatitudes respond to the natural desire for happiness. So kind of like those questions, why is there something rather than nothing? We're never able to answer that question uh, 100%. But it's much better that there is something rather than nothing. And because there is something, all the trees, all the animals, you look at the seven days of creation, the pinnacle, of course, being man, Adam, and Eve. The fact that man is created, all things are meant to be brought back to God. All of creation, which comes from him, is meant to go back to him for the sake of happiness. And man, who is made with an intellect, who is made with a soul, the soul being immaterial, it is... uh, Uh, For all eternity, we're not just made for a lower happiness or limited happiness, but the heart and soul is made for eternal happiness with God. Uh, The desires of divine origin. God has placed it in the human heart in order to draw man to the one who alone can fill it. So uh, all of our favorite things, it could be our favorite food, our favorite sports team, our favorite uh, book, all these types of things, they're good. But all those things uh, together cannot uh, add up to that perfect and eternal happiness that God himself uh, provides. As such, in living a morally upright life, this is 0.6, not only is man fulfilling his primary vocation to holiness, this is from the Second Vatican Council Encyclical Lumen Gentium, this uh, first time it really spoke explicitly of this universal call to holiness uh, for all persons. So whether it's my vocation to be... uh, diocesan priests, vocations to marriage, uh, vocations to uh, religious life, whatever it is, as lay lay persons, first and foremost, our vocation is universal call to holiness. And whatever we do, how can I be a holy uh, disciple and follower of Jesus uh, in my job, in my uh, environment, setting, wherever I'm at? So just how can I uh, be this disciple and living a morally good, upright life Uh, That leads me to happiness. And other people can see that too, right? Uh, So often, if we're living a morally upright life, we're faith-filled Catholics, people who are not can see that and like something is off. Like, 
I'm doing all the things of the world. I'm striving to be successful in my career and education and whatever, but you seem to be much happier than I am. And you and I, we seem to be, you know, similar in a lot of respects, but I'm miserable. Or they might not express that uh, outwardly, but internally they see you're happy, I'm not. What's the difference? The difference is grace. The difference is likely prayer or surrounding yourselves with people who are building you up in the faith and uh, desiring to live life uh, that Christ has ordained because you're seeking happiness not in these uh, things of the world that can't provide happiness, but in the one who provides eternal happiness, that beatitude. So, uh, and fulfilling his primary vocation to holiness, but equally man is fulfilling his vocation to beatitude, eternal communion with the triune God. To live the beatitudes is to live in Christ and Christ in us. Okay, so I mentioned we have to understand ourselves more as human persons in order to hopefully understand morality uh, more fully, I think. So just uh, in a nutshell, 1.0, Christian anthropology. What does it mean to be human? So if being human is no different than being another animal, in this case an irrational animal, cat, dog, cow, giraffe, elephant, whatever, then I can act like an animal. There's no difference, so I'll just act like an animal. I'll do whatever I want. But if being human is something more than being just an animal, I should act different than animals based on what makes you and I different. What makes me different from a dog or a cow? What makes you different from uh, an elephant or any animal? So properly, then, a human being is a body-soul composite of a rational nature. We look at philosophy, so the two arguably the two greatest that really speak highly of this, Aristotle, and then Aquinas follows Aristotle. He takes a lot from him and builds off of that. So humans are rational animals. And what makes humans uh, being specifically human is our intellect and our reason. We're able to rationalize and we're able to possess universal truths. Animals cannot do that. They have senses, you know, they're hungry, they eat, if they're thirsty, they drink. They want to reproduce, they reproduce. They have voice systems just like us, but the fact that we can obtain universal and possess universal truths and know that God exists is incredible. And that will always make us far superior to any animal. And we have free will. So what are our desires, what are our emotions and passions, all that's going to influence our free will, but choosing among many goods, more often than not, striving to choose the best, the best good, the greatest good. So being human is something that is freely given to me by God. So in, his, in the language of the catechism, the sheer gratuitousness. God had no reason to do any of this, but out of love, he freely has known me from the beginning, even before I was created, even before all of you were created. In his perfect divine intellect, he has known all of us and every specific characteristic, even the total numbers of uh, hairs on our head. 1.5. In view of the incarnation, man is made body and soul in the image and likeness of God. Therefore, what we do with our bodies matters. What we do with our souls matters. What we do as human persons, as body-soul composites, possessing an intellect and a free will, with our emotions, our passions, all that matters. And what we do with our bodies and souls matters. Our lives come with great responsibility. To live in accord with our human nature, to not out 
act outside of our human nature, but to play within the rules that God has so uh, providentially, wonderfully has ordained, so that the glory of God can be revealed through us. If there are any questions at any point, again, feel free uh, to ask away. Uh, 1.6. When we discover Christ living within us, we will begin to discover our true dignity. And in that discovery, we begin to live more and more as we ought. The more we understand Christ and his teachings in the gospel within sacred scripture, within uh, this parish community, continuing to strive step by step along the way, we begin to understand ourselves better. We begin to understand our relationships better, friendships, uh, marriages, family life, just relationships in general, human nature in general, we begin to understand. Uh, We are not the primary authors of our own story. So as I tell my kids at Pius, I always have four rules for my class. Maybe I've mentioned it before, but four rules. Rule number one, God is God, we are not. Rules two and three, don't be weird, don't be a jerk. Rule number four, God loves you and so do I. So as much as we'd like to do whatever we want so we can have what we believe to be a happy life, if it's not according to God's will, it's not going to lead us to that blessedness, that beatitude that he so wants for us. So we're not the primary authors of our story, but we have, by God's grace, been handed the pen by the author himself. How we choose to live our lives will reveal an epic far greater than man's wildest imagination or a tragedy whose nature is objectively hell-like, total absence of God. If we just, this is the path to God, if I just simply say, thanks God, but no thanks, and do a complete 180 and walk that way. Even if God still loves me, he's going to provide me some graces here or there, because he's created me, and uh, free will is that double-edged sword. But ultimately, I'm just walking further and further away from the light until I'm in complete darkness. Okay, Uh, now let's look at true freedom. So, a few scripture passages here to uh, set the context. In Galatians, Paul speaks, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand fast, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. A few verses later in verse 13, For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love be servants of one another. Then in First uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 16, Live as free men, yet without using your freedom as a pretext for evil, but live as servants of God. So what we see here in those three uh, verses is there is this order of charity, right? It's love of God first and foremost. That has to be the foundation, as it should. So love of God, love of neighbor. It's this self-sacrificial, dying to self, Uh, for another person, as Jesus most perfectly manifests for us on the cross. He dies to self most perfectly. But it's also a love of ourselves, and not in this egotistical, narcissistic mentality, but in understanding who I am as a human person, you understanding yourselves as human persons, and understanding human nature, we should love ourselves because God created us good. God created us to be particular saints who uniquely continue to glorify God based on my life and based on your lives. So we should love ourselves with a holy fear of the Lord, holy uh, prudence and holy humbleness and meekness, so to speak. So that threefold order of charity to God, to neighbor, and to love ourselves. So oftentimes we define freedom as freedom from. So 
what does freedom from mean? It means having no external constraints. So if I have no constraints, then finally I'm free to do whatever I want. Everyone get out of my way. And I will do whatever I want, whenever I want, because I want to. This seems fun. This makes me free. No one's telling me what to do. This is freedom. This is great. And maybe sometimes, yeah, you do choose the right path. Maybe you do choose something that does provide happiness. Maybe without anyone telling me uh, to go to Mass on Sunday, maybe I can do whatever I want. And in this case, I'm going to go to Mass on Sunday. So it's not saying you're always going to uh, trip up. But eventually, if it's just this mentality, I can do whatever I want and no one can tell me otherwise, we're probably going to trip up sooner rather than later. But looking at the lives of the saints, instead of this mentality of freedom from, they argue that true freedom is freedom for. What do I mean by that? Freedom for is being free of anything that prevents us from achieving our true end. This is true freedom. The ability to choose and to do the good more often than not. So if I want to go to Mass on Sunday, but I have a roommate that's preventing me or my schedule because I'm working just uh, over 40 plus hours a week and I'm working especially on Sundays. This is preventing me from my Sunday obligation and so forth. Well, I got to work. I still got to make money. So I'll get to Mass when I can. So maybe instead of every week, I'll go uh, once a month or uh, whenever I can type thing. Well, no, that love of God still comes first. If I my job is preventing me from that, then I got to get rid of that so I can uh, get to Mass. So if I'm free from that job, that'll uh, no longer prevent me from uh, the moral obligation to go to Mass on Sunday. And a lot of different examples you could use here. Yeah, so uh, there, okay, there are times, uh, depending on circumstances and that type of stuff, let's say you don't need it. It's a, let's say it's a second job on Sunday. You don't really need it. But if it's a primary job or, yeah, if you don't work, your family is not going to be provided for. That would be a different circumstance and situation. Absolutely. Yes. I'm just giving one example. Like I said, I know this is the fun stuff where you're like, well, Father, what about this uh, moral situation and so forth? Uh, but yeah, same thing with uh, farmers too. I always kind of go back and forth on that. You're provided whatever God gives you weather-wise, and this is the only time that you can get your crop out of the field. Do you work on Sunday or not? Which growing up, it didn't prevent my family from going to Mass on Sundays. Like we'd always go whenever, the earliest mass, and if it provided time to harvest or planting, whatever it is, we were able to do both because that was our economic financial sustenance for providing for uh, the family and so forth. All right, 2.3. Thus, living a life immersed in the Beatitudes requires a life lived in true freedom. Additionally, living the Beatitudes leads to that true freedom. So it's this cyclical relationship. The more we live a life of the Beatitudes, the more we're going to experience true freedom. It's still going to be difficult. We're still going against totally uh, the way of the world. But in doing this, we're going to experience uh, the freedom to uh, be able to choose the good, the higher path, that narrow road, that narrow path more often than not. Uh, true freedom is found in the conscious decision to do the will of God within our moral actions and in embracing his will to live in accord with our innate human dignity. So what does the catechism state on freedom? So a few paragraphs here. Freedom is the power rooted in reason and will. So right there, the catechism is ex expressing that goodness of the human person, what makes 
human specifically human, to act or not to act, to do this or that, and so to perform deliberate actions on one's own responsibility. By free will, one shapes one's own life. Human freedom is a force for growth and maturity in truth and goodness. It attains its perfection when directed toward God, who is our beatitude. As long as freedom has not bound itself definitively to its ultimate good, which is God, there is the possibility of choosing between good and evil. In other words, nothing in the world or life is 100% objective. Nothing is 100% subjective. It's going to be a mix of subjective truths, a mix of objective truths. So objective truth, one plus one equals one. That's never going to change. That is objectively true and factual. What I say? One plus one is two. That's what I said, right? Oh, yeah, sorry. Okay. I, yeah, I'm like, I didn't say it's something else, did I? Yeah. Or then, like, subjective truths, no matter how hard I try and convince other people, the Chiefs are not the absolute best team ever versus. Broncos or Chargers or any other team, are they better than the 49ers? We'll see in a couple weeks. But no matter how hard I try, I could be right in the face and try to convince all of you that the Chiefs are the best team and everyone should be Chiefs fan. That's never going to work because that's a subjective truth. And Blake's here, so yes. And Father Clark's just down the road, uh, down the hall there as well. So, okay. Uh, And yeah, because of original sin as well, we're not, we haven't, you or I have not perfectly united ourselves to Christ. That's the goal. But because I'm still a sinner, all of you are sinners. We're not, none of us are perfect. It's always going to be this constant battle, the spiritual battle of choosing between good and evil until the second coming, until the final judgment. Uh, this freedom characterizes properly human accent. It's the basis of praise or blame, merit or reproach. Am I choosing good or am I? Uh, not choosing good? Am I avoiding evil or am I seeking evil? 1733, the more one does what is good, the freer one becomes. There is no true freedom except in the service of what is good and just. The choice to disobey and do evil is an abuse of freedom and leads to the slavery of sin. So whether that's like habitual sins, uh, temptations, and so forth, we feel like we just keep falling down the same rabbit hole over and over and over, and we can't get ourselves out of it. All of us have experienced that at one point or another. If we haven't, we undoubtedly will. But thank God for the sacraments, which we'll talk about later, especially the sacrament of uh, confession, the reality of sanctifying grace to, yep, you've sinned. You you saw a lesser good. The devil tempted you for this lesser good, when in reality, uh, the way you achieved that, or the way you sought that wasn't good. But God forgives us eternally through the sacraments. He forgives us through confession. We receive the Eucharist. We become a new creation again. Okay, repent and believe in the gospel. Go and sin no more. Just like he does all throughout the uh, gospel. And his encounters with the woman at the well, uh, the woman with uh, hemorrhages, uh, Jairus' daughter. I mean, all these different occasions. Lazarus or uh, Zacchaeus. I mean, he's doing this constantly. Uh, through the Gospels, Matthew, just simply two words, follow me. He's a tax collector. He's despised by Jews uh, all over the place. But simply with two words, he drops everything and follows this Jesus. Or Peter, James, and John, they dropped their nets, they followed him. Master, where are you staying? Come and see. This beatitude living. 
So when we seek Jesus, more often than not, we're going to uh, be removed more fully from these slaveries of sin, these habitual sins, and we'll uh, achieve that true freedom uh, in following Christ. All right, uh, 3.0, natural law. So very briefly, we know uh, by reason, all of reality is ordered according to laws. God is not a God of chaos. He is a God who is most wise. He is the unmoved mover. He is the most wise creator. So because of this, the universe in reality is not pure chaos. If it was, just imagine, yeah, just literally it would be chaos. We can't even begin to imagine what would be the case. But two, I'm not uh, great in the field of science, but all of science is based on this fact too. If you have scientists or in our physics classes, I actually never had a physics class in my life, but I was in chemistry and all these things. You have to use the scientific method. You follow all of those steps. And it's not just random chaos. If I do this, it's going to lead to something totally different. Like No, when following the steps of the scientific method, you follow that process and cause and effect are present there. So a person can replicate an experiment precisely because of cause and effect. It enables me to state basic truths or new basic truths. If I plant an apple seed, it's going to produce not a grapefruit tree, but an apple tree. Or when a, a husband and wife conceive a child, they're not going to give birth to a refrigerator. They're not going to give birth to a computer. They're going to give birth 100 out of 100 times a child. I guarantee it. I'll put all of my resources that you're not going to give birth to something other than a child. So, yes. So, cause and effect. God is not a God of chaos. He wants order. He wants structure. He wants uh, <clears throat> beauty and order and truth. Those transcendental qualities that we see. So concerning the natural law, another reason the natural law is so good, it's not inherently religious. We can use it oftentimes for religious-based reasons, but if you're talking to someone who's an atheist, an agnostic, a Muslim, a Jew, or whoever, you're able to make arguments based on natural law in order for them to understand this truth, to understand who the person of Jesus is, what morality and the importance of morality, or whatever argument you're trying to make, or if they're coming up to talk to you, trying to uh, refute to the faith or the Catholic faith in, in one way or another. So concerning the natural law, all created things act according to what they are. We see the importance of nature and words signifying what they mean. What is it? What is the thing's essence? What it actually is? Deskness, bookness, or the Bible, computerness. So it's, it is what it actually says it is, and it's created to be. So because human persons possess free will to choose good or evil, natural law is a moral law. Because we're always making that choice between good and evil, it has to be a moral law. It's leading us closer to God, or it's leading us further away from God. So in other words, we ought to treat persons, we ought to treat all things according to what they are and their God-given purpose. So being good stewards of God's creation too, right? Even in, back in Genesis, he says to, uh, be fruitful and multiply to take care of the garden, to care and cultivate it. So being good stewards, first and foremost with persons, because they're the pinnacle of creation, but also just being good resource or good stewards of our resources. But if I act against my own nature or treat someone or something against its nature, I will harm it, or worse, I could destroy its very nature. 
whether it's a physical nature or think of if I sin seriously, I can destroy a spiritual nature. If I have the virtue of truthfulness and I tell, I'm on the stand, do you tell, swear to tell the whole truth, uh, the whole truth and nothing but the truth? I do. And I say that man did not in fact kill uh, that uh, good Samaritan. It was this other person. And I lie. That truthfulness, that virtue of truthfulness that I have, won't say it will destroy it entirely, but it, it would be a huge assault against that virtue of truthfulness. So physically, I'm going to feel very, very, very bad. And spiritually, that virtue of truthfulness will just be, like I'll intentionally just take an axe to it and chop it up into pieces. So a physical and spiritual nature is at play here when we go against our own nature. What does sin actually do? But with sanctifying grace, it can restore that spiritual and physical nature. When I go to confession, I feel a whole heap of a lot better. Spiritually, those roots are re, uh, replanted. It allows for growth. It allows for healing. It allows for uh, myself to be made a new creation. So natural law can be known through our human reason. As I said, it's not inherently religious to use natural law-based arguments. It's just simply a reflection of reality. And by nature of being human, we recognize in the most basic level the things and or actions that are contrary or in accord with our human flourishing. Okay, so that's natural law in a nutshell. We can come back to that later if we want. Now let's look a little bit more at virtue and vice. And I've said this before too in 4.1. In a sense, Catholic moral theology can simply be summed up in the one phrase, do good, avoid evil. Yeah, Father, easier said than done, but in a nutshell, that's exactly what we need to do. Do good. So then it can be subjective too. Okay, Father, well, you say do good and avoid evil. What's good in your mind? What's good in the church's mind? Which it gives us the Ten Commandments and Beatitudes. So we can answer those questions, but someone could argue that that seems pretty subjective. Or avoid evil. What specific evils? Which again, the church can answer those questions and does answer those questions. Uh, 4.2, in order to do good and evil, however, man is in need of habits of virtue in order to ward away habits of vice. So simply speaking, 4.3, virtue, how do we define it? It's a habitual and firm disposition to do the good. <clears throat> Excuse me, more often than not. So the more virtue we, we acquire as a habit, the more we are able to live the good life. And vice? is a habit inclining one to sin, and how do we acquire this? So virtue is, a, the more we act virtuously, the more that habit is built, but if we sin, it's by repeated acts of sin. That habit of vice kicks out virtue, and then this habit of vice is formed, and we can only build that habit when we do uh, evil. Repeated acts of sin in violation to the proper norms of human morality. That's the language that the catechism uses. Okay, so we'll make a distinction then of virtues. So there are two primary virtues. We have the cardinal virtues, and we have the theological virtues. Theological on the next page. But cardinal virtues, sometimes they're called hinge virtues. So think of like a door. It hinges. So these four primary cardinal virtues, all other virtues center or are hinged upon so what are the four cardinal virtues? We have prudence. This is discerning our true good. 
So small g and capital G good, ultimately in the virtuous actions we want to do, it's leading us to the capital G good of God and how to best pursue it. Aquinas makes a big argument, or there's theological debates and so forth, but of the four cardinal virtues, I would argue that prudence might be the most important in the sense of everything we're we're trying to do, if we're trying to do good and avoid evil and live a virtuous life because we see it leads to true freedom and happiness and so forth, the best course of action to do good, that's really important. So instead of just rolling the dice and say, okay, I'm going to act this way, or I wake up and I just put my finger up in the air, which direction is wind blowing? That's how I'm going to live. We can't just simply do that, but getting the game plan together, how am I going to live? Or if I need to be more uh, faithful and I desire a holier way of life, then what's the best path uh, to take? And to ask uh, opinions of other people, reading the lives of the saints or asking your pastor, what are uh, steps that I can take prudently in order to live my best life? Uh, justice, giving someone or something their proper due. What is owed to this person? What is owed to my job? What is owed to society? Uh, fortitude is the firmness in the face of adversity. We can break that down a little bit uh, further. Fortitude with respect to uh, more difficult spiritual goods. Uh, so hope is also going to be included there. So like best example is Jesus' passion uh, and death. Jesus had the supreme fortitude. He knew he was going to suffer the worst death in the history of the world, and yet in fortitude, he faced this adversity head-on because of his supreme love for us. Nothing was going to deter him from accomplishing this great Paschal mystery to establish this new covenant of love. Then we have, fourth and finally, temperance, man's moderate use of created goods. So everything in moderation or virtue lies in the middle in that sense. We don't want to be to one extreme where we are above and beyond, or we don't want to have too little to, or essentially nothing. So Aquinas always keeps us right in the middle. Virtue lies in the middle. So moderation. So these are different from the theological virtues. So with the cardinal virtues, the more we work on this and practice, practice makes perfect. Still with God's grace, but we're going to achieve Uh, by God's grace, these cardinal virtues and all the virtues that are connected to these four primary virtues. So it's a give and take. God is working with us by his grace to build up those habits. But with the theological virtues, no matter how hard you and I work, we cannot merit the tiniest iota of a theological virtue. This is God's uh, supreme and complete gift uh, of himself to us. He literally infuses these virtues within our hearts within our souls that allows us to participate fully in God's divine nature. So the three theological virtues is faith, hope, and love. Faith, belief in God and his full divine revelation. Hope is trust in the ultimate goodness of God. He will not abandon us, that there truly is a heaven. What he says is actually true. We place hope in that. And charity. Faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is love. Charity. Loving God above all things for his sake and our neighbor for love of God. And all of these virtues then, too, if you're looking at the cardinal virtues, the virtues connected with them, or the theological virtues, Thomas in the Summa comes back to this time and time and time again. All the virtues are not simply for uh, their own sake. 
you're practicing all of these virtues for the sake of charity. You're practicing this so that you can grow more in love with me and my divine essence for that beatific love, that beatific life, so you can love your neighbor more perfectly so that you love yourself in a humble and proper way. So everything is done for the sake of charity. All right. So now kind of the meat and potatoes is what we've been waiting for, I think. 5.0, making moral choices, the moral act. So whether you realize it or not, we use this on a daily basis. But first, look at the Catechism, 1749, back to freedom briefly. Freedom makes man a moral subject, as we said. If good and evil have to be, uh, are the two choices, then uh, ultimately freedom has a moral character. When man acts deliberately, man is, so to speak, the father of his acts. So if you have the question of like Adam and Eve with respect to original sin, because Adam uh, is the father of all persons, we inherit that original sin because in Adam and Eve's original sin, he was the father of his sinful act that was original sin, his being married to Eve in their one flesh, children, the offspring, which leads to you and I today it is uh, passed on to us generation to generation. So human acts, that is acts that are freely chosen in consequence of a judgment of conscience can be morally evaluated and they are either good or evil. So 5.1, the morality of human acts depends on three things. So this is what we use every single day on a daily basis. Apologize, I'm left-handed, so can't see. I'll move out of the way. First, you have your object. What's the object? The object is simply the chosen action in a moral situation. What are you doing? What's the action? And I tell my students this all the time. If your object does not include a verb, you have, it's not correct. You can't just simply put a noun. It can't be a person, place, or thing. What is the verb? What is the action that you are actually doing? So the object, it's a verb, it could be good or bad in itself. I'll come back to that in a second. Next you have your intention. The intention is just simply more or less asking the question, why am I doing what I'm doing? For what purpose? What's the end goal? The purpose of the acting person. And then... Third and finally, we have circumstances. And these are the fill-in factual, uh, yeah, factual fill-ins, whatever you want to call it. Circumstances. Okay. So facts surrounding the moral action, maybe who, where, when, so forth. Uh, circumstances, depending on what they are, can increase culpability. Or decrease culpability, or it, yeah, it can increase the goodness of a moral action, or it can take away from the goodness of a moral action, or make uh, uh, immoral action more serious, depending on what those circumstances are. Generally, circumstances will not uh, state this action is immoral or change the uh, the nature of a good moral action and a bad immoral action. Like, pretty rare. I'll give you one example where that could happen. Let's say the object is celebration of Mass. What's the intention, as Vatican II tells us, for the glorification of God and the sanctification of His people? 
So we have a good object, we have a good intention. Now let's look at circumstances. Who is celebrating Mass? It's myself, Father Clark, Father Ramanetti. No problem. Well, let's say the who is Jane Doe, who believes herself to be a priest and is celebrating that Mass, or it wouldn't be a valid Mass, but there, that circumstance, it would totally change the species of the morality, make it a bad action. But on the flip side, let's say who's celebrating Mass? Is it myself, Father Clark, or Father Ramanetti? We're all good to go. Or is it uh, Padre Pio? Is it Pope Francis? Is it John Paul II? I don't know about you, like, I'd be more than happy to can celebrate if the Holy Father wants me to can celebrate, but I would be more than happy to just be in cassock and surplus and let the Holy Father or Padre Pio or our favorite priest saint celebrate the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. So it would increase the goodness of that object, which is the celebration of the Mass. So you can kind of see circumstances. They fill in the factual uh, information surrounding the moral action. But importantly... For a uh, moral action to be good, the object, the intention, and the circumstances all must be good. You can't have two or three be good, or object and circumstances are good, but my intention is bad. Two out of three, or two is greater than one. It's nothing like that. All three of these must be good for a moral action to be properly considered a good moral action. So if all three of these are not good, then sin enters the picture, and then the question becomes, okay, well, what kind of sin is it? But before we get to that, let's look at next page, 6.0. What is sin? Sin is simply an offense against reason, truth, and right conscience. A failure in genuine love of God, neighbor, and ourself. Sin is caused by an inordinate attachment to certain goods. Beginning with Adam and Eve, sin wounds man's human nature and is an attack against human solidarity. So this is a good reflection on the uh, church as the mystical body of Christ. So again, if let's say I'm a habitual liar, and let's say tomorrow I just go on this rampage of lies and I'm just telling lies left and right. None of you see me for the entire day. You have no idea that I've just gone on this terror of uh, telling lies nonstop. That's in a personal assault against all of you. You're all members, or hopefully, God willing, if you desire, to become members of the church. But even as Christians, it's an attack against the mystical body. Or let's say some of you do know that I lied, or maybe I lied straight to your face and you called me out, Father, why are you lying? I know that's not true. Then even further, it's an assault because why are you sinning against me in this way? Or vice versa, you, you can commit sins and all of us commit sins on a daily basis, right? The just person still sins at least seven times. It's this constant spiritual battle against myself and against the church. But on the other side of the coin, when we virtuously act, morally good actions, it's building up the body of Christ. I may not know your virtuous actions, but spiritually this mystical body is continuing to grow closer and closer to Christ in freedom and happiness and beatific life. And when we sin, it's an attack against the church. So this is sin in another respect. So there are two primary types of sin that we can break down. First, we have a venial sin. So actions that weaken our ability to choose God. So some sanctifying grace remains, but... We don't have the entirety of sanctifying grace. 
or we have a mortal sin. Mortal sin is the more serious of the two. So these are moral actions that completely rupture, cut off our relationship with God. Sanctifying grace is all gone. It only takes one mortal sin to entirely remove all sanctifying grace. I believe I've given this analogy before, but if you had two glasses of water, if I have two bottles of water up here, I could go outside and grab a couple of pebbles, some grass, a couple of clods of uh, mud or dirt. I could put them, drop them into the bottom of this water bottle. I could still drink about 95% of this water, still be good, and like, oh, I get to the bottom, I don't want to drink the uh, material down there, so I'm not going to finish it. Think of that as venial sin. There are some imperfections, but there still is some sanctifying grace there. But if I have a mortal sin, I could get a big uh, eyeglass droplet and put some uh, red food coloring in there. One big drop, it would infiltrate this whole water bottle and it would look like Powerade or Kool-Aid or something like that. But let's say that red food coloring is cyanide, it's poison. I could drink the whole bottle of water, I could drink one little sip. That's going to still ultimately take my life. It could still kill me because it's that powerful. So some material at the bottom, venial sin, one drop of cyanide infiltrates the whole, that would be a mortal sin in that sense. Okay, so viewing sin in this perspective, it helps us understand all the more the importance of living in relationship with God and striving to live a life full of grace. And if we sin too, like, great. I'm, as I tell my kids all the time too, I'm not here to judge you. My job is to be a humble servant, to teach God's uh, fullness of revelation, to teach you why the church teaches what she teaches. If you sin, which I'm first and foremost a sinner in need of God's grace. So if we sin... Not a big deal. You can talk to a priest. You can go to confession. You can ask for spiritual counsel, guidance, whatever it is. One good confession brings you back to right relationship with God. So it doesn't define who we are, but we're always moving forward with the help of God's grace. Yes. Uh, within the Mass, so at Lord have mercy or the confidior, when we have that brief moment to think about our sins, if there are any and all venial sins, when we say, uh, the tropes, or Lord Jesus, you are uh, you were sent to heal the contrite of heart. Lord, have mercy. You came to call sinners. Christ. So the tropes, confidior, I confess, to Almighty God, all those venial sins are uh, forgiven. Yep. Uh, I'll come back to yeah. I'll remind me if I don't get back to that because I have some other comments on that. No, you're good. I, I'm glad you uh, asked that. Uh. 1997, catechism, grace is a participation in the life of God. So just coming back to that beautiful reality of sanctifying grace. When we have sanctifying uh, grace in our souls, we are in that, like the fullness of God's life is living within us, which is a great thing. We need that sanctifying grace in order to get to heaven. So it's a habitual gift, paragraph 2000. Sanctifying grace is a habitual gift, a stable and supernatural disposition that perfects the soul and strengthens our person to enable it to live with God, to act by His love. Habitual grace, then, is that permanent disposition to live and act in keeping with God's call. So the more we frequent the sacraments, the more we receive God's grace through the sacraments in confession and the Eucharist, it's helping us in our whole person, physically, spiritually, mentally, morally. Like the particular graces you're seeking, or like we all have particular crosses. If you go to confession, 
Like God loves us so much that He's not only going to give you absolution, but He's going to strengthen you with the very particular graces that you need to overcome those particular crosses, those particular habitual sins, whatever it is. And it just makes us feel, as I said, so much better. Uh, being the chaplain for the pious uh, football team this year, too, I always, whenever possible, would offer Mass for them. But if uh, we had guys that weren't properly prepared to receive uh, the Eucharist, like thankfully they weren't receiving if they weren't prepared, but I said, I'm immediately going into the confessional. Like, You literally will play better. Anything we do, you will perform better when you are physically and spiritually renewed in these sacraments. So having guys, the football players, go to confession and seeing them uh, just have that weight lift off of their soldier, shoulders and just uh, being joyful and going out there and performing well. It's just like people think it's only a spiritual reality. It's like, no, physically, our minds are cleared. It's just like taking dynamite and blasting away all that imperfection and impurity and the path is clear and we just go straight ahead. It's It's really powerful. So being able to get back on the right track and seek that habitual life of grace. Okay, so 6.4, back to uh, object, intention, circumstance, or we're looking at mortal sins, so this relationship here. For a sin to properly be called a mortal sin, three conditions must be met. You have serious or grave matter. So telling a white lie, little lie, versus I lied when taking an oath to not lie, and I committed an act of perjury. Perjury is the serious or grave matter. A white lie, still, yeah, don't lie, thou shalt not bear false witness, but you can see the more serious, less serious nature. Full knowledge and full consent. So another way to look at this is serious or grave matter based on the moral act or the object, it's serious. I have full knowledge or I fully know that it's seriously wrong and I choose to act in this way anyway. All three of these conditions must be met for a sin to be properly classified as a mortal sin. If even one of these is missing, it would be properly a venial sin. So all three must be met to constitute a mortal sin. So, so there I'm sure... You, and we'll have maybe a little bit of time for questions in uh, that frame. Like, Father, what about this situation or this situation and so forth? i um, more than happy to talk about those. But, yeah. Object and attention, circumstance, knowing the relationship between these two things. Or not letting the devil attack you in these ways. Like, oh, well, you didn't do this. You're a terrible person and it's a serious sin. He's just trying to be a jerk. Like, he, he's a one-trick pony. He's just trying to make us... Uh, be afraid and, and so forth, but uh, even if you do commit a mortal sin, again, nothing to be afraid of. Just simply go to confession when you're able to. If it is a mortal sin, you just go confess your sins and you're made a new creation. So, okay, uh, tools for morality. I just really want to focus here on conscience. There are other tools we can look at. I do have some other principles we could look at, but for now, I'm just going to talk about. Conscience. This is without a doubt the most powerful tool with respect to morality because we're also using our conscience, hopefully, on a regular basis. So Gaudium Espes has a beautiful uh, words 
uh, with respect to conscience. So Gaudium et Spes is another encyclical or document from uh, the Second Vatican Council, and it talks about conscience in this way. So deep within his conscience, man discovers a law which he has not laid upon himself, but which he must obey. This law, uh, part of it is the natural law, but the natural law is also coming from God's divine law, his eternal law, which then the natural law is uh, imprinted on every single man. It's imprinted on uh, his heart and soul. So this law he's talking about is the natural law, but God's eternal law and divine law. It's both and. It's voice, the voice of our conscience, ever calling him to love and to do what is good and to avoid evil, sounds in his heart at the right moment. For man has in his heart a law inscribed by God. His conscience is man's most secret core. It's his sanctuary. There he is alone with God, whose voice echoes in his depths. I love that Gaudium et Spes, it talks about our conscience as a sanctuary, because it's exactly right. You think of a tabernacle, you think of the most holy place within uh, the church. In the sanctuary of our conscience, when we are striving for a holy way of life and a regular sacramental life, the full power of the Holy Spirit is present there. God in His three persons is present, uh, is present there. God who is in Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus who is the Word. That Word is firmly imprinted on our conscience. So other than life itself, our conscience is one of the most amazing, beautiful, powerful gifts that we have. So in that sense, go back to when we were talking about what makes man specifically man, our intellect and free will, also our conscience, like, our bodies matter. What we do with our bodies matter. What we do with our souls matter. What we do with our conscience and properly forming our conscience so that we can more often than not live a good moral life and do good more often than uh, evil. Our conscience is without a doubt one of if not the most powerful tools we have other than our intellect and free will. So 7.2, for us to properly use our conscience, we must know how to act. Well, how do we do that? From the moment we're born, with our our parents, our family, we go to Mass, we learn the teachings of the Church, we continue to just soak in this uh, infinite wealth of knowledge, this stream that knows no end. So it presumes that our conscience is well-formed. So we look at our world today, regardless if people are Christian or Catholic or no faith whatsoever, when we sin more, our conscience, even if it is well-formed, the more we sin, the more darkened our intellect and free will is going to be com- or, yeah, compromised. And it's like taking a sledgehammer to our consciousness and just beating it over and over and over and over again to a million pieces. So the conscience, it's well, very deep there. It never leaves man. But if we continue to sin habitually, we're just making our conscience a total non-factor and we're just going to do whatever we want. So in that mentality, that's kind of where you get the freedom from. Well, I can just do whatever I want because this is what's making me happy. Well, is it really making you happy? Are you settling for a limited happiness in a fateful, eternal reality or vice versa? Like you suffer now, walk the narrow gate, and then receive eternal life. So we can form our conscience in a lot of ways. The church has many resources, as I said. Going to Mass on Sundays, regular sacramental life, scripture, reading, Lexio Divina, the catechism, uh, continuing to uh, have a regular prayer life, 15 to 20 minutes of silence, meditation, contemplation, or 
time in adoration with our Eucharistic Lord, learning and being in intimacy with our Lord himself, being in be, uh, beatitude with our Lord in adoration. Uh, looking at the lives of the saints, your patron saints, your confirmation saints, who you're thinking about choosing. Uh, faithfully practicing Catholics, so just picking Catholics' brains. Uh, you want to learn more about the faith. Why do Catholics do this and that? Or if I'm going to become a Catholic soon, how should I uh, do this or that? People similar to your own vocational lives, so whether it's a discipleship group or a Bible study or, yeah, just how can I be the best Mother, father, priest, uh, worker, just in your workplaces uh, and so forth too. If there are other Catholics there, then maybe getting together uh, for a joint Bible study or just having a time of uh, prayer or so forth. I don't know. The, the list is endless, but we can just continue in many ways, form our conscience, and continue to seek the truth. Okay. At 7.4, I do have principal double effect, material cooperation. I will. If you want to talk about that, we can. We'll have a, I'm going to give you some time for some Q&A. But 8.0 is my summary. Simply, straight to the point, as I began with. Morality and being Catholic isn't just avoiding sin and mere rule following. Yes, we have to follow rules, but our Catholic faith and moral tradition is God's grace empowering us. Empowering us to be great, empowering us to be the saints He has called us to be from the beginning to experience the fullness of beatific happiness in this life and in the next. So not to be afraid of morality. Morality is a great gift. And we're able to express our love for God in literally everything that we do. Every breath we take from the moment we are born into this world, the last breath that we take, everything we do has an essentially uh, moral character. So just let's give glory to God in all things forever. So. Yes. The question asked here was, where can we find the difference between venial and mortal sin in sacred scripture, as well as what's our understanding of where it comes from in the Christian church and its tradition? Going back to the Beatitudes, like Jesus does give us that moral roadmap. There are things that he clearly says, do this and don't do this, or in the Old Testament, like Sodom and Gomorrah, or whatever uh, it is, like serious sinfulness, we see their consequences, that they die a uh, horrible death, or like the story of Lazarus, like just give me the tiniest drop of water for I'm so thirsty and so forth. It's like this whole, your whole earthly existence, you were able to be a uh, charitable uh, neighbor, which you didn't do while you had the time on earth, so like the imagery of wailing and grinding of teeth and so forth. So we know we have to live a moral life. So then it comes to what is serious or grave matter. And that's where the church and her wisdom it tells us uh, in the Ten Commandments of the Beatitudes, what are venial sins, what are mortal sins, or when we know that this is definitely a serious grave matter and I had full knowledge and I had full consent. And I know this is something uh, where I went against God. I turned completely against God and it's something... Many other answers, but we can just look at Scripture and all the different... Yeah, the fifth commandment, thou shalt not kill. It's using a specific word. At this point in the dialogue, Chad, one of our teachers, responded from 1 John chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. 
directing our eyes to where we see in the New Testament a distinction between sin, which is deadly, referring to sin, which destroys the life of God in the soul, and sin that is not deadly, but is, that is still serious, such as venial sin. 1 John 5, 16 and 17 reads as follows. If anyone sees his brother committing what is not a deadly sin, he will ask God, and God will give him life for those whose sin is not deadly. There is sin which is deadly. I do not say that that one is to pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin which is not deadly. Father Clark, during this time, also responded that in the book of Leviticus, there are prescriptions for priests to mark which sacrifices are for intentional and unintentional sins. So even from the beginning of the Mosaic Law and the Old Covenant, we see a distinction between different types of sins and that which God forgives, um, but also requires different things of people for restitution and repentance. The next question was asked to be give an example of a mortal sin and how it might play out. Which, did you know the word? Topic. But, but when you break down the definition in our, our notes, it's the killing of an innocent human life. It's like an abortion or euthanasia or embryonic stem cell research, which in doing that research intentionally is taking uh, innocent human life away by testing human embryos. Uh, which their embryos aren't strong enough to sustain that, so any and all human embryos uh, die from that. It's versus self-defense. Blake and I are in the context of war. We're both enemies. We come across each other. We don't want to kill each other. War is one of the most uh, atrocious uh, events, one of the great uh, awful effects of sin. He doesn't want to die. I don't want to die, but I also want to preserve my own life as he does. So my object is shooting Blake and Blake shooting me, but our intention is I don't want to die. I want to save my own life. So my, I'm in, intending not to kill him in uh, murder, in this uh, bloodshed, innocent bloodshed, but my intention is first and foremost, I am seeking to save my, uh, my own life in the context of war. So Self-defense using, which that was that 7.4 I didn't get into. We have to use what's called the principle of double effect. So there, uh, when bad effects are unavoidable, we can use this principle where the object must be good. The good cannot be achieved by the bad effect. Uh, it's proportionate. So one life is saved, one life is lost. Uh, the You can't... Bad... Ends can't be used. Let's see, bad ends can't justify good means. And there are no other options available. So I can't just, right from the bat, seek the principle of double effect because the principle of double effect has within it bad things happening. But if we're in the context of war, self-defense, where I'm preserving my own life, Unfortunately, it's unavoidable. We're both going to be shooting at each other. I hit Blake. Blake misses me just by that much. Or you can even, if may not, I'm going to try and shoot him 
uh, like in the ankle or something like that. If I'm able to, I can wound him without taking his life, and then he can become a hostage or a prisoner of war. But if I can avoid taking his life, or it's just like split second, I'm just shooting, don't know what's going to happen. Out of self-defense, I'm acting to save my life in that sense. So my object is self-defense. My object is not I'm going to seek to murder an innocent human life. Or like he's a prisoner of war, he's surrendered, and I just shoot him anyway. That would be uh, bloodshed, innocent human life in, in that sense. Yeah. It may so. be war, maybe a little bit more complicated. Yeah. But think about some of the breakdowns you have. I think that would have been a better example out of self-defense. Um, you have a struggle for your life, and they kill you, and flip them over a cliff, let's say dramatic movie scene, flip them over a cliff again, and kill them. The intention that, yeah. So that's why object and intention are so important. All three of these are so important. They all need to seek to be good. For a medical reason, one of the ways or one of the most often examples, if let's say you have cancer, so a pregnant mother has uh, stage three or four uh, cancer, uh, uterine cancer. So the doctor's intention is in no way to kill the child. His intention is to preserve health for both mom and child. His intention is to take out the cancer. So perform the surgery for the sake of taking out the cancer. Possible unavoidable bad effect, it could take the life of the child, but at no point in that surgery is the doctor intending to kill that child in an act of abortion. He's seeking to end removing the cancer, if possible save uh, mom and child, but if the child does die, it was never an act of abortion. So using the principle of double effect, one life is saved, one life is lost. Uh, the bad or the good is not being achieved by uh, the bad effect, which is killing the child. We'll kill the child and then we'll save you from your cancer. No, you can't kill the child intentionally. You have to do the operation of simply removing cancer. Thank you for listening to this great content from St. Peter Catholic Church. For more content, for other talks, for more information, please visit St. Peter Catholic Church, Lincoln, Nebraska, on Apple iTunes or on Podbean, and at our parish website, stpeterlincoln.com. God bless you. Nebraska, on Apple iTunes or on Podbean, and at our parish website, stpeterlincoln.com. God bless you.